Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And we're coming live from the Important Cinema Club party. Yes, we're here at uh, the beautiful Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, we're recording this at the Important Cinema Club party at the uh, Park Hyatt Ballroom. Whoa! L- look I at, never thought I'd be here. Look at look at we're in a we're in kind of a uh, an area off to the side. We're in a soundproof booth. <laughs> That's but, right. Yeah. But we're seeing. But there's glass, so yeah. people can see in. We're and seeing see it all live. the stars. There, there's a uh, Matt Damon over there, and there's a uh, Tom Hanks. Oh, here come. Here come Brad and Angie. Hey, guys. <laughs> How's it going? Oh, t- Brad. You, th- this guy, Brad, he is such a cut-up. He's uh, he's pushing his nipple up to the glass. <laughs> when you get this guy at a party, it's insane. So we're going to be talking today about the Toronto International Film Festival. Yeah. 2016. To all, to all of our foreign listeners, uh, all our listeners who may not be immersed in the TIFF bubble, uh, we apologize. But you have to understand that when you live in Toronto, this festival uh, is such an... It, it encompasses everything it, when it happens. It, it's massive. And not only during the festival, the TIFF Bell Lightbox, which is their, their movie theater here, is just such a monumental uh, force in the city. Uh, so let's talk about film festivals themselves. What was the first film festival that you attended, Will? Oh, God. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I went to a uh, shitty convention when I was a kid called uh, the Geek Convention or something, (laughs) and I watched Creature from the Black Lagoon uh, projected uh, from a VHS. The first film festival I went to... Oh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to host film festivals as, like, parties for for my friends. So I'd have, like, uh, eight or nine of my friends over, and I would have, like, the Three Stooges Film Festival, and I would, like, have a program. What? Really? Yeah. I never did the program thing, but I would have, like, show a bunch of friends, like, three or four movies. Mm -hmm. The idea of programming for friends was such a attractive, like, prospect. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't get away with that too often because, like, you know, if I would have friends over to watch, like, Fantasy Mission Force, like, they would get bored pretty quickly. (laughs) I think the first time I attended a film festival was Fantasia in Montreal, which is probably my favorite film festival to this day. And I remember I went with my father and we watched the movie Undead, which is like an Australian zombie film that the Spielberg brothers directed. Mm. And I don't think I had ever had such a visceral audience reaction watching a movie. Mm. I vividly recall people jumping to their feet and applauding at one point, which has never happened to me in any other movie um, screening ever, like in the middle of a film. I mean, that's what's great about film festivals. I mean, you're seeing it with an audience you know, just as the received wisdom is about to be formed around the movie. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of getting in on the ground floor a little bit. And just because the audiences tend to be so big at film festivals and, you know, the the movies, certainly not all of the movies that they show are kind of on the vanguard of cinema, but there are enough movies that are doing interesting and experimental things that if you see 10 or 11 movies at a festival, it feels a bit like, going to an interesting conference or I, seeing, a, seeing a lot of different new ideas. I would often go see the programs that are more genre-orientated, especially Fantasia, which is what they mostly deal with, mm-hmm. and like Midnight Madness at Toronto. And there's like a special feeling of being in an audience that's like applauding and cheering, which I know that you don't like. 
when people applaud, right? Not necessarily. No, I, I like when people applaud sometimes. Oh, sometimes within limits. Well, I mean, I'm not. Uh, did I ever say that? I, I think you did. You were like, Ugh, look at that person applauding over there. Well, I imagine that's one person be like, oh. Like, I think it probably depends on the movie. I, I mean, sometimes it gets a little tiresome when it's like every time, you know, at a Midnight Madness movie, somebody says, fuck, the audience, like, gets so excited and applauds. Like, I mean, there <laughs> is limits to that kind of stuff. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later. But we actually watched movies for this podcast. Yeah, well, the Toronto International Film Festival, of course, has a, a long and distinguished history. Um, uh, I mean, there, there's there's so much about TIFF. There are so many different kinds of TIFF experiences you can have. You can go stick to the Wavelengths programs and see the experimental stuff, or you can go to Midnight Madness and see the ghouls and goblins and and (laughs) things that go bump in the night. Uh, But, I mean, let's face it, TIFF was basically a festival that was founded by a couple of, like, uh, businessmen, entrepreneur types, uh, with the hopes of getting a lot of film people into the city. And it was known as the People's Festival. Yeah, and that it was basically the People's Festival just because like that's all it could be at that point. Mm-hmm. Like that was the only way they can kind of brand themselves. And in the early festivals, uh, the festival's sort of like Catholic taste in film programming, the fact that they would have all sorts of different kind of movies was just because they would take whatever they could get. I remember just this year my uncle telling me that his feature film premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. Oh, what was and his film? I don't remember what it was called. It was never released. Was it called The Big Chill? <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's the kind of movie that when I said, why hasn't it been on DVD yet? He was like, oh, well, you need to watch it on a tube TV or the effect of the screen doesn't really. I'm like, OK, so it's one of those films. It's a wavelength picture, pretty much. But I mean, even though you can have lots of different kinds of experiences, I guess because of the fact that it's a festival that was started by businessmen and to attract an industry audience, uh, it's a festival that its branding is so much around the fact that it's the place where the Oscars Mm -hmm. are launched like there's an award called the people's choice award Mm -hmm. that exists solely for them to be like look we knew who was going to win an oscar basically i mean even a few years ago they had do you remember that ad they would show before movies where it would say american beauty won five oscars but first it won the people's choice award and or or like uh, 12 years a slave won a billion oscars but first it won the people's choice award and then it said choose the next great film the imitation game yeah <laughs> which um, won the people's choice award room room uh zadoichi by beat takeshi it did not win the people's choice award yes it did what? <laughs> and that will never happen again that will never happen actually again. there was another movie that won the people's choice award in 2006 that was crazy it was called bella and it was basically a movie that like pro-life groups like bought tickets for and stuffed the ballot box for so that it would win it's a movie that i I don't think it's like a christian film i've never seen it but it's a movie that has some like subtle pro-adoption pro-life themes and for people that don't know the way that you vote for the people's choice award now is that when you leave the theater you just put your ticket in a box Mm. and that counts toward a vote i guess i guess and i i I figure they do it like proportionally uh who knows maybe they just count them they have some out or they just say, yeah, 12 Years a Slave is going to win this year because <laughs> yeah. it's going to win the Oscar. You know that Birth of a Nation would have won this year if, you, it, if it were not for, you Do you know. think that it's not going to win this I, year again? I mean, who no, cares? No, absolutely armchair, not. armchair quarterbacking. That like, like, if it comes up and they count it and Birth of a Nation wins, 
Are they like, oh, fuck. Well, listen, I hate to um, uh, cast aspersions on the rigorous uh, ballot counting process (laughs) at the People's Choice Award, but I think that it will not win. I think that that Ryan Gosling musical will win. Oh, La La Land. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one. I think it looks fun. Um, So we watched a movie that we wanted to pick one that kind of exemplified the People's Choice Award in our minds. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that's usually that challenging. Like, 12 Years a Slave seems to be an exception to the rule to that kind of stuff. But even that is kind of like a prestige, middle-brow movie. I mean, I like the movie, Mm -hmm. but... uh... I mean, but you can't get more middle-brow than The Big Chill. Holy shit. (laughs) Which is the movie that we watched. Now, people love The Big Chill. It was just released by Criterion a few months back, I think. Yeah. It was directed by Lawrence Kasdan, the man who gave us... Indiana Jones wrote Empire Strikes Back. The Great Silverado. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the Western with Kevin Costner and all those people. But uh, a lot his directorial work, I would say, uh, tends toward movies about uh, older people. Dreamcatcher. Oh, yeah. Dreamcatcher. <laughs> but he did a movie like a few years ago that was like, a, I think it's, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a, a romance between Diane Keaton and Kevin Klein. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, I didn't see it. Yeah, I was looking at his IMDb. Or, or Mumford. Uh, st- stuff stuff like that. So, The Big <sighs> Chill is about a bunch of, I guess in their mid-30s, late 40s? Baby boomers. Baby boomers. In, in 1983. Coming together because one of their friends committed suicide. The friend, of course, famously played by Kevin Costner, but we don't actually see him. He plays the corpse at the beginning that's getting dressed. His scene was cut. And um, there's all kinds of stars. Kevin Klein, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, William Hurt. Uh, a smoking hot Meg Tilly. <laughs> yes. Holy and, shit. Um, uh, Glenn Close. Tom Berenger. <laughs> Tom Berenger. Top builds Tom Berenger. <laughs> yep. <laughs> He's going to have a career. And so these are a, uh, a group of uh, uh, boomers turned sellouts who uh, were best friends in college and in the early 20s, but have kind of drifted apart a little bit. And they keep saying at the beginning that they've kind of given up on their dreams. One of them wanted to be a uh, defense uh, attorney, found it was too hard. One of them wanted to go teach children in Harlem. Yeah, doesn't want to do that. Another one wanted to write, like, the, like, important nonfiction, but now they're just writing fluff pieces for Toronto Life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to comment on that, please. (laughs) You goddamn bastard. <laughs> and so all these guys and gals get together and reminisce about good old times and kind of reconnect and listen to the um, laziest old oh. rock soundtrack. Holy shit. All the dad rock in this movie. Every time, you know, I like most of these songs individually, but every time one of these songs would, first of all, I hated this movie. I'm just going to get that out there. <laughs> But every time one... It's not for you, Will. Maybe when you're in your late... It's for my dad. (laughs) In your late 30s, you're going to start to like... Every time one of these, like, uh, classic rock songs would start, it was like being stabbed in the stomach. (laughs) You'd you'd hear... You'd hear... Wouldn't it be nice if we were older? And I'd be like, oh, shut the fuck. Or or, or it'd be like... Jeremiah was a bullfrog. (laughs) And so these people who seemingly have no real problems i mean they are like super comfortable upper middle class people talking about their summer homes and 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 doing insider trading (laughs) like actually basically the biggest angst is that uh yeah they're just worried they're a little bit shallow Mm -hmm. and that they gave up on uh, on their aspirational dreams their their plans to make the world a better place when they were younger don't worry they never go back to that to to which i would say hey listen give me a full-time job (laughs) Uh, a permanent contract position and that'd be great <laughs> yeah so 
This movie. These fuckers tanked our economy. Okay. <laughs> they did. These people. <laughs> And now, and they have the nerve to be like, to, "I'm not that happy." Yeah, I could have three homes, yeah. couldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> like at one point, one of them buys like Nike sneakers oh for all God. of them with their names on it, <laughs> and I think that exemplifies the whole feeling of the movie. Uh, w- one thing I'll say in the movie's defense, one thing that I almost liked about it was, I think there is something to the idea of depicting a group of friends who have sort of grown apart but know each other really well and have some lingering affection, but there's kind of no real future to their friendship. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting... I think many people can relate to that experience, and it's nice to see a movie that sort of deals with it. That's all I'm going to say that I like <laughs> about this movie. Okay, do you remember the scene at the near the beginning, at the end of the funeral, where uh, the... The eulogist says, and now whoever, whoever is going to come to the organ and play a song that meant a lot to the deceased. And she gets to the organ and she starts playing on the organ, the Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want. And then they all smile and like nod at each other. It cuts to Jeff Goldblum, just the corners of his mouth (laughs) going up a little bit. It's like, huh, what a badass. (laughs) Playing a, but you know maybe playing a tired Rolling Stones song at the funeral. <laughs> maybe at this point, um, this wasn't all tired. Maybe this was all real fresh. Uh, well, we're not in that world anymore. I'll tell you. And then, and then it cuts to them. It's like watching Birth of a Nation, and you're like, that is not okay anymore. <laughs> It cuts to them, like, you know, taking out the casket as the actual Rolling Stone song plays. You can't always get what you want. And I just wanted to punch this movie. Like, I I was thinking, if I never hear this song again, I would be happy. (laughs) I mean, it's the... I mentioned this to someone that I'm like, I hate all of these characters. And uh, my friend was like, well, you know, rich people have problems too. Oh, boo. And uh, Antonioni used to say that he liked to make movies about rich people because they have no wants or needs. So their emotional states are more pure than like poor people who what? need to like pay for rent, <laughs> pay for food. Wow, okay, that worry makes about me disease. like Antonioni less. <laughs> And that's the main issue of this film, is that there's no real conflict. I mean, William Hurt can't get an erection, but at the end, thanks to some tunes and a sexy hot Meg Tilly, who, like, gently touches his hand, he'll be all right in the end. It was nice to see some actors that I like, you know, Kevin Klein, Jeff Goldblum. I like these people. Kevin Klein doing an accent that seems to be going in and out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Seriously. <laughs> what he was trying to do. So, uh, Oh, but I, I would just add, though, that uh, I was wondering... I guess one of the reasons I don't like this movie is that it's a generational thing. And I was thinking that I like a lot of the mumblecore movies, Mm -hmm. which I'm wondering, are they actually any better than this? No, I don't think so. No, but I like them because they, they clearly reflect or are better at reflecting an experience that I'm familiar with. But you have to remember the mumblecore films will also be about like Caucasian city dwelling people. Yeah. Who really don't have that many real problems. I know, but I can project myself onto those movies more easily. So you and your dad can like meet across a room while like the Rolling Stones is playing, and I assume some kind of Three Doors Down song <laughs> is playing, and you can connect over that bond. If the Big Show were remade today, by the way, the music would be all like do 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 Generation X one. Yeah. Oh man, that'd be even like. Ben Stiller, or, or Owen like, Wilson. In the name of love. It, that, the, those would be two on the soundtrack. By the way, my parents own the Big Chill soundtrack. Everybody their age owns the Big Chill soundtrack. Do they love the movie? I don't think so. Well, they probably saw it and liked it when so it came out. So they're just like contractually obligated to like buy the soundtrack? I think so. I, I don't think they've played it lately. Okay. So, Big Chill, not a good movie. Completely understandable why it won the People's Choice Awards. Well... 
and this gets back to something that's very important about TIFF is that the stars come. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why it won the People's Choice Award. This was a, f- a fairly early People's Choice Award winner back when TIFF was still struggling in the shadow of the prestigious Montreal Film Festival. Which barely exists now at this time. Yeah. So to have a movie where, you know, Jeff Goldblum and Kevin Klein and Glenn Close were coming and, you know, walking down Yorkville and they were all there at the screening. Of course, people were like stuffing the ballot box full of their <laughs> tickets. They were so excited. They got that close and they just want more. Actually, yeah. I should point out that Lawrence Kasdan's first movie, Body Heat, is really good. I've actually never seen it. Um, which is a kind of uh, retelling of Double Indemnity with William Hurt, who became... The uh, Lawrence Kasdan muse for a long time. I love Kathleen Turner. Uh, Kathleen Turner is the best. Mm -hmm. So let's get back to TIFF as a kind of event. So before I moved to Toronto, it was a big kind of um, impossible to imagine attending thing. Oh, it was like that for me too when I grew up in Etobicoke. Mm -hmm. When I finally started going, uh, I was so starstruck. It was amazing. So the first time I went to TIFF, was I was working on a TV, kids TV show all day and I'm like I can go at night and see Midnight Mass the only screens I can go to I saw a Frontiers the French film mm-hmm. didn't like it very much I saw Inside loved it and it had that kind of audience reaction that I hadn't experienced other than at Montreal at Fantasia mm-hmm. and that for me I felt was TIFF but it's not because thanks to the magic of the internet, I get to experience how everybody else perceives TIFF and likes to share it with the whole world, I guess. Yeah, I hate film Twitter. Okay, so let's talk about what has TIFF kind of become. So when you go to TIFF, what is your... Like, if you didn't have a job, right, Will? Mm-hmm. Would you see as many movies as you could? Uh... If I didn't have a job and I had a press pass, yes, I would. Okay. I've had a press pass, like, when I was in undergrad, mm-hmm. and it was great. So, but Twitter didn't exist at this point. Right. So what has Twitter, in your opinion, brought that has kind of... Because I feel like it has completely restructured the way TIFF is experienced. Well, I mean, there's definitely more of that, you know, hot take culture Mm -hmm. uh, where everybody is, like, competing to be the first one to talk about a movie. Why? I don't understand! Who cares? Well, you get more retweets. and You you? get more faith. Well, But those people don't like you. They don't like you if they're retweeting you. Right. So, like, seeing the movie first and having the first thought, like, the credits are rolling up on screen and you're, like, and typing you can kinda it like, fast. And you can kind of, like, lord it over the people. Oh, I saw this movie first. Like, but people don't like you for that reason, do yeah. they? I saw Snowden first. It's coming out next week. You, you, no, I mean, they don't like you, but maybe there's a certain sort of person who, like, you know, folks like us when we were growing up who sees that, it's like, wow, they got to see the movie early. Yeah, so, like, 10 and 12-year-olds like yeah, on yeah. Twitter. I, but also, they're, like, writing for each other, right? Yeah. Because I, and it even affects the filmmakers that are coming. Because, like, James Gunn got on stage after the premiere of his film Belko Experiment, and he went, Thanks everyone that wrote nice things on Twitter for the movie that just ended two minutes ago, and fuck you to the guy who wrote something negative. I know who you are. (laughs) That's funny. So, Twitter is doing a thing where people can communicate with each other, also elevate each other, and uh, affect filmmakers. Because I feel like even something trending on Twitter can affect whether a movie sells or not. Yeah, probably. Um, Like, you could retweet something and tag the movie, and, like, the filmmakers will probably retweet you. Mm -hmm. You know, because they want to show that people actually enjoyed and like the movie. Uh, The other thing I like about TIFF is uh, journos trying to be friends with celebrities (laughs) and and taking selfies with them and, like, like, tweeting at them being like, um, oh, hey, I met at Morgan Spurlock at the party. (laughs) Cool to see you, Morgan. (laughs) Wait, that actually happened, didn't it? 
Well, I didn't see anybody tweeting that, but I did. We did see Morgan Spurlock at a party. I yesterday. did not see him. You didn't see him? No, I he didn't. was there yesterday. Was he? Okay, listen. I know this is going to be like pretty exciting for all of our listeners, but I saw Morgan Spurlock himself in the flesh. Wait, wait, wait! Director of um, Where in the World Is Osama Bin Laden? The man himself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Nothing else needs to be said about Morgan Spurlock. I used to go on his Wikipedia page and add Bounty Hunter to his... <laughs> You're finally admitting this yeah, uh, live I, on air? I am. I, I used to have it so that um, it would say, you know, Morgan Spurlock is a film director, producer, writer, Bounty Hunter, and and I would have the uh, have it linked to the Wikipedia page for Where in the World is Osama Bin Laden. It was up for about six months before they finally took it down. To the point that someone... It asked a question to Morgan Spurlock about that. Yeah, so Where did Body Hunter come I from? I saw uh, they did that in an interview, and uh, Morgan Spurlock sort of chuckled and uh, seemed to take it in good spirit. So in a perfect world, uh, people going to TIFF, see the movies, say nothing on any social media platform. Yeah, I mean, there's just too much talking, I think, and, in, in the world in general. And I'm sure you could argue it's like, <laughs> just get off Twitter. Um, yeah, but but you know, I'm being hypocritical here because I kind of like it. I, I like I like reading these hot takes. Okay, do you? Yeah. So like when per- someone's like, uh, "Get me some popcorn at the screening," and there's like well, seven tweets about well, that's that. A little t- and well, if you've been following this festival this year, the big drama is the oh. fact that the elevator at the Scotiabank Cinema was closed, so these critics had to walk up. Oh my god! So this kind of stuff, I I, I said it was like um, la grande bouffe. It's like. <laughs> People, like rich people, just like eating themselves to death. Yeah. Where they feel like they need to talk about something. It's, I remember when I did 50 movies um, at TIFF and I would show up late at night so tired Mm. and like, I'm like, oh my God, I need sleep. I'm sorry. I I can't do the dishes tonight. I saw too many movies (laughs) and it's just so like full of shit. Oh, I I do get tired of of people on Twitter talking about how tired they are. (laughs) From, sitting and watching from movies. a long day of seeing three movies and interviewing three celebrities. Ugh. It's just like... <laughs> Try coal mining. That's really hard. <laughs> it's just... But you know what? You could also argue that they're kind of in their inner circle, so this is just going to people who are also sharing these thoughts. But then I'm on the sidelines being like, I like you, but yeah. I don't like these tweets that you're sharing. Yeah. Um... Uh, but I also hate being in line at the public screenings and listening to the rich people complain about how long the lines are. Okay, yeah, this is the thing that, like, <laughs> TIFF screenings um, had a bit of a controversy this year, like they have every year. Yeah. Which is that tickets were $25 up to $37. Well, yeah, they had surge pricing for the ones that were apparently in higher demand. So you could, like, the opening night film, uh, the cinema classic, The Magnificent Seven. I'm dir- very excited to Directed by Antoine For Fuqua. $5 on a Tuesday when it comes out from two weeks from now. Well, apparently the tickets for the opening night were like 60 bucks, And I think that if you pay 60 bucks for a ticket, you deserve to watch The Magnificent Seven. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that, like... Here's the thing. The festival is not for, like, crazy cinephiles at this time. It used to be, because you could buy a, 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 a package of tickets and it would be very cheap the mm. more you buy. It do- That doesn't exist anymore. Mm. What exists now are just... We're just going to charge as much as we can. It's probably going to sell out anyway. Mm. So, you know, if you don't want to pay it, don't pay it. Don't see the movie. And I mean, they talk about the People's Festival, but like TIFF is an elitist festival. Yes. I mean... They let people who buy VIP tickets in first. But also, just even John and Joe Public who want to go see a movie at the festival, they're doing it for... A lot of them are doing it for sort of elitist reasons, that they get to go see a movie early and they get to see celebrities there and they get would, to lord it over their friends. I would often talk to people and I'd be like, oh, are you seeing any movies at TIFF? And they're like, no, it, I, I can't 
Like, I can't go to that. Yeah. Like, it was such a foreign concept to go to this big film festival that they didn't have even considered seeing a movie there. Yeah. Uh, like, instead, we get very old people who have no idea what they're about to see, mm. often shocked by it, or like, oh, I didn't like that. Yeah. Or uh, I remember waiting in line, and my friend said he was waiting in line for Free Fire, and uh, the woman in front of him was like, I don't know what this movie's about, but I just want to see Brie Larson up on stage. Oh, God. Yeah, I remember uh, a somewhat disgruntled audience at the screening for Kim Ki-duk's Pieta. Oh, my God. Really? People people just who were just like, you know, going to see movies in the contemporary world cinema program. Oh, I've been to Korea. I like. <laughs> <laughs> and let's just say we're not better than any of the people that we're talking about. Oh, no, we're, no, we're, we're, we're bad. Yeah, <laughs> we're just as bad. I remember when I got... Um, uh, I got my pass last year and I, I realized I would have to wait in line in a rush line, which means I may or may not go in every screening. I made like a, a photo comment and then within moments, someone was like, boo hoo. Mm. And I was like, what monster have I become? Yeah. <laughs> um, but speaking of films that are transgressive that people are not expecting, we also watched another movie, which was Martyrs. Yeah, well, this is a movie that you and I both saw at its... Uh, world premiere or it might have been at con earlier but it, it's north american premiere at the midnight madness uh sidebar it was tip. like this the energy crackling in the room because me and you were there like yeah. magnets getting close together <laughs> this, yeah this is the uh part part of our origin story <laughs> uh, and we saw this movie really hyped up and me and will at the time hated it should we explain what midnight madness is yes uh it's the uh you know it's just a place for after a long day of watching art house cinema and oscar contenders and indie gems you can just let your hair down and enjoy the ghouls and shivers and spooks (laughs) let me just say that first off I'm too old to go to Midnight Madness. Oh, yeah? It's way too late. Yeah, it, <laughs> like, is, it is late. I, I have been... I would love I'm 10 struggling. o'clock madness. <laughs> I, even at home, when I'm at home, if I'm watching a movie past midnight, I just go to... <laughs> and I'm, I'm a guy asleep. that loves, like, 24-hour movie marathons. I love all that shit. But the thing of seeing a midnight... Because when I first moved to Toronto, Midnight Madness has all the movies that, as a young cinephile, that just likes blood and action and horror and fantasy and all these things this is where you would see like giant monster movies would be at midnight madness i believe one of the last ones they played that was a straight one was gamma 3 like revenge of iris or something like that and also just lots of uh horror movies and, and action films weird, weird stuff i mean there there are always in years when i've seen a lot of movies at tiff there's always been at least one or two at midnight madness that are among my favorites of the festival so i would buy a pass it was a hundred dollars if you were a student so that's like ten dollars a movie that's nothing yeah and so the first few years i would go so much fun then i got a job so i go to midnight madness come home sleep for three hours then go back back to work that's awful but i always every year like to see at least uh one or two well it's it's an audience reaction that you can't get like anywhere else Mm. right like the audience really gets into it good and bad Mm. like the thing about like audiences getting into things is that like someone has to take it to the next level so like someone will take a beach ball at the beginning of the screen and play with it then next thing it'll be condoms yeah then it'll be 12 balloons at the first Midnight Madness screening this year, someone had an air horn that Ugh. every time someone applauded, they would sound off. Mm-hmm. So I like yelled at the top of my lungs being like, put the fucking air horn away. Mm-hmm. 
what, what is going on? But on the other hand, if you see a movie like the great uh, martial arts film SPL2. Oh my God. The audience. Blows just, the roof off the place. It's like watching a sporting event. That's yeah. what it is. Is that the audience just gets into it and you like, you can't believe it. You're plotting so hard that your hands hurt. And those are like the best Midnight Madness screenings. Mm. Other times you have movies like Martyrs. Martyrs uh, is probably the most notorious film to come out of the so-called... Uh, French extremism? Yeah, the new French extremity of yeah. really ultra-violent, torture-heavy French horror movies from the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we both hated it when we saw it that first time. Um, although I don't think I... I hated it, but I hated more of the experience of seeing it. It's, it's a pretty miserable experience, and it's structured in a way to make you feel it at the end. And also, seeing it at the Ryerson Theater that night, I mean, no, I've never seen a theater that can be as loud as the Ryerson Theater. So, like, every gunshot in the movie, or, oh, or you know, the scenes of, um, you know, somebody's head being beaten in with a mallet, or just, uh, just awful stuff with piercing volume and an intense screen so the plot so when i watched it today on on a vlc screen (laughs) that was great so the plot is about a young woman that in her youth escaped from this um facility it seems at the beginning that was torturing her Mm -hmm. and years later having gone through kind of the system and trying to get psychological help and who made a very dear friend in the system basically the adoption agency she, um, and we're going to spoil it a little bit, mm-hmm. um, goes to the house she believes um, holds the family that tortured her and kills them all. Mm-hmm. And from there, it goes in a direction that you probably don't think it's going to go, mm-hmm. um, which is that this woman is haunted by the ghost of some creature. Is, is it real? Is it not real? Mm-hmm. You know, watch Martyrs to find out, which supposedly is really tough to get on DVD right now. Oh, That's yeah? actually been discontinued in Canada. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, on Blu-ray. But most notoriously, the movie, the last act of the movie is basically just 30 minutes of a woman being tortured nonstop. Yes. Basically, The Passion of Jonah of Arc. Yeah. Um, but, like, in graphic detail. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, Watching it again, I, I'm, I can't say that I exactly liked the movie, uh, I, the, but I have a certain respect for its uncompromising vision and the fact that I don't think there's anything really hypocritical about this film. Uh, I know it often gets lumped into the so-called torture porn genre. Like Hostel, um, the Saw movies. Yes, yeah. but you're not actually supposed to get a get a giddy charge out of anything you see. It's supposed to be a miserable experience. It's interesting because this time I really um, kind of uh, became aware of the film's three acts, where mm-hmm. its first 42 minutes are super intense. Mm-hmm. And it's like, boom, 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 gunshots going off, monsters kind of appearing and cutting people. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly something is revealed and it slows down mm-hmm. where well, it becomes about something else. And then suddenly another thing is revealed and the film cements itself in what it's going to be for the rest of the movie. And I remember the first time all of my instincts of what a horror picture is supposed to be were kind of not being delivered on. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're like, what, what is going on? Like when is the mm-hmm. reversal going to happen? And it never does. But I also remember thinking at the time, um, even though I didn't like it, you know, if a horror movie is supposed to be horrifying, this is this works. Oh, uh, <laughs> an interesting um, film to compare it to would be obviously Michael Haneke's Funny Games. But where it's different from Michael Haneke's Funny Games is that Funny Games kind of keeps it at a distance mm-hmm. and it doesn't like this movie mm-hmm. that or kind of message that it's trying to give. Where you can tell the director of Martyrs, uh, Pascal Logie, 
genuinely loves these kind of horror films mm. and the kind of visceral reaction they can get out of an audience. I know that the director has said in interviews that one of the reasons he made the film was uh, to reflect the dark time in which it was made. Um, which, he was supposedly very depressed when he wrote it too. Yeah, and which I mean sounds a bit like bullshit when you hear when you hear that applied to a movie like a Serbian film. Yeah, where, which is gleefully exploited. Uh, I hate that film, and you know you'll hear the director say, "Oh well, we we were." Uh, uh, it was a metaphor for the way that the Serbian government has raped its citizens. It's like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, but it's a movie that has a guy with a giant erection just killing a guy with that erection. Yeah, among other awful sights. Uh, but I, I, I think, you know, not to be armchair psychologist again, but it's interesting that martyrs did come at you know, during the time when Abu Ghraib and mm-hmm. torture were... I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, but those were things that were dominating the headlines. Uh, and it's just a reflection. It's kind of taking the torture porn genre to its ultimate horrible conclusion. And I guess it was a reflection of what he saw as the moral bankruptcy of the time. Yeah. And and I, I mean, you can argue about whether that's really all that coherent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can argue about whether this sort of nihilistic vision is even worth putting up on the screen. But, I mean, it's at least uh, a really uncompromising film. And, I mean, when you watch, you know, a film at Midnight Madness, you hope that's going to happen, right? Because even at TIFF, you see a lot of movies that are just nothing. They just kind of yeah. wash over you. Or they're there for cer- certain political reasons. Like, they're, you need to have a certain stars, or here are the movies that are going to be the Oscar movies. Yeah, like, you need these movies to play. Or here's score a hockey musical. Okay. So do we want to talk about, like, opening night films? Uh, well, let's get to it in a minute. Uh, but what I, what I would just say, uh, in addition to what we said earlier, is that, like, the best experience at a film festival, I think, is to see something that's really on the vanguard of something mm-hmm. and that's really challenging you. I think Martyrs is a movie like that. It was really on the cutting edge of horror at the time. And uh, some of my best experiences, a movie from a few years ago, uh, Tsai Ming Lang's Stray Dogs, mm-hmm. which was a wavelengths film and was kind of... Uh, there was a, a mo- There's a movement in international arthouse cinema called Slow Cinema. And S- Stray Dogs is as slow as it gets. The second last shot of the movie is just a 14-minute take of two people standing there. Uh, And that, to me... I mean, that's why I go to the film festivals, to see stuff that's really challenging and that's showing you new ideas. Or I just saw Elle, Paul Verhoeven's Elle, a few days ago. And I think that's a movie that's really on the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. It's those kind of movies that you want to see at film festivals. But like you said, due to political concerns and the people sometimes that are paying up to... $60 $60 a ticket, mm-hmm. they don't want to pay $60 and see Martyrs. Right. They want to see something like The Magnificent Seven or score a hockey musical. Mm-hmm. Or um, there was a year that, uh, uh, I forget what the title is, that Jason Statham, um, Clive Owen, Robert De Niro kung fu film opened the festival. Oh, that Killer Elite. Killer Elite. Did that open the festival? I think it did. Oh. Or it had a very prominent place in the festival. Well, I mean, the gala screenings are always... I mean, it'll be stuff like Stonewall. I remember yeah. when my friend... Um, Pierce went to, he spent a year getting like 50 tickets and he was so excited to go see Gallows and stuff like that, that he went to go see A Dangerous Method and paid a ridiculous amount of money for it. Mm-hmm. And they just stuffed all the paying customers up in the balconies mm-hmm. at like the worst angle to watch the movie. Those those Gallows, they're for like when the board of CIBC, uh, you know, group buys tickets or you know all the all the financiers like they're basically corporate events and the other thing is is that like 
they don't do Q&As at galas. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why are the actors and directors here if they're not going to talk about the movie that they're going to do? Which transitions me into question and answers at movies. Well, this is, um, uh, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche topic, but I mean, it, it bears bringing up that they're terrible. <laughs> they're awful. I hate them. I hate them so much. But I mean, I kind of like them, if only because... Uh, how many times are you going to be there with Paul Verhoeven in the room? I mean, that's great. I, yeah. I love that. I just, you know, it, it's a weird kind of catch-22 where I like the idea of audiences be, being able to interact with these people as opposed to being kept at a distance. But then it's just the most terrible questions. Uh, I hate questions that begin with, well, obviously, uh, this isn't a question so much as a, st- as a comment. That's- or s- someone that stands up to say a joke. Oh, yeah, terrible. You're, you're like, why are you wasting our time? Or uh, when somebody says, uh, hi, Pedro, uh, we met yesterday at the <laughs> Intercontinental. Uh, like, that's awful. Patrick Stewart, I'm a big fan. Could 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 I get a hug? Oh, terrible. Or, or, or when it's like, uh, hello, Jackie, uh, thanks for coming. I'm doing a documentary about th- this or that, and I was wondering if you could do an interview. Or- it's not about you! <laughs> yeah. I, I, I honestly wish, and I'm sure they did it one year, where the moderator is like, listen, don't ask a question about yourself. Mm-hmm. Just don't do it. Also, don't make a statement. Don't make a joke. You will be ejected and banned. Whenever I've ever asked a question in a Q&A setting, I've always like rehearsed it in my head and it's always been like a sentence long or really? two sentences. I, I used to ask uh, questions and answers all the time when I used to go to screenings at Fantasia. Mm-hmm. And I felt so dumb for asking them. There were dumb questions that I'm like, do I just want my voice to be heard mm-hmm. or do I actually have something that I want to be answered? I, I usually only ask a question if I have one that I'm really serious about or if it's a sparsely attended screening <laughs> and, and I feel bad. And it always takes a while for the first question to be asked, right? Right. When they go like, who wants to ask a question? Like, no one usually raises their hand. Yeah, so I've definitely done it in that context. Tiff, um, you know, if you can go, why not? Yeah, it's fun. There's a lot of movies playing. I think that my um, methodology from these years forward will be, I will see the movies that interest me or that look interesting as opposed to seeing as many movies as I can. Oh, last year I went to see the Gaspar Noé film Love. Uh, not very good. No. And somebody in the audience asked Gaspar Noé. He said, uh, I have a question. What was the point of this film? <laughs> and Gaspar Noé said, well, I will quote Alfred Hitchcock. If I wanted to deliver a message, I would go to a post office. <laughs> All right. So what are we doing next week, Will? Peter Bogdanovich. All right. Yeah. We're really taking it easy again. Well, it's because we're both seeing stuff at TIFF this week. So we want to do it. A- I mean... I'm probably going to see all the big hits, <laughs> like like uh, Black Mass, uh, Stonewall, Passchendaele. <laughs> so excited! Yeah, score a hockey musical too. Oh uh, man, strikes again! Can't wait. Is Walter Gretzky back? <laughs> <laughs> yep, <laughs> he is as a mythical figure and or ghost. So on the Bogdanovich episode, uh, we're going to talk about. Uh, uh, the man's classic film targets great movie and i don't know at long last love long last love which is this big budget musical where people like burt reynolds sang on set mm-hmm. and that's what was going to be used in the movie just like les miserables and um it completely tanked peter bogdanovich's career peter bogdanovich is an interesting figure because he's part of that wave of the movie brats like william friedkin even steven spielberg and george lucas and all that stuff brian de palma but who has been basically forgotten in the public mind. Well, he's very important to cinephiles such as us because of the fact that he was friends with John Ford and Orson Welles and lots of other people, and he's written a lot of books on those subjects. Great books. And it's just sort of a general um, 
public persona. He's he's the living face of Hollywood's golden age. So we're going to throw some mascots on, put on some sunglasses. <laughs> and we're going to complain about how they don't make movies like they did in the studio era. <laughs> <laughs> Man, your Peter Bardanovich is pretty good. How about your Cary Grant, Orson Welles, Jimmy Stewart? Uh, I'm Cary Grant over here. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. Over here, it's, uh, it's Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> oh, my God. Peter Bogdanovich is in the room. <laughs> All right. So uh, send us emails at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. We will read them on air. We will. We promise. <laughs> After ragging about Q&As <laughs> for that long. Yeah. You know, make it thoughtful. Make it personal. Don't ask make us for a hug. Don't ask we us can't do it. Oh. how much this podcast cost. Uh, it costs zero dollars. <laughs> it cost me money to get here on the subway. <laughs> and go rate us on iTunes. All right. All right. My name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. The movie of the year is coming out soon, Will. Skip Trace. Nope. We've already seen that one. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> Can people tell that we're sarcastic? You know what? Skip Trace, a Jackie Chan, Johnny Knoxville picture, wasn't as offensive as it could have been. No, it was blandly competent. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but there's another movie that taps into our youth and what we find important in cinematic life. And it's... Shin Godzilla. So this is the new Godzilla movie from Japan. Not the American Godzilla. What did you think of the American Godzilla? I don't think I've ever asked you this. Oh, the, the Gareth Edwards one yeah. recently? Uh, I thought it was... Uh, kind of boring to be honest with you uh i know that a lot of people talked about how oh man godzilla is like the shark in jaws you don't see him that often but he's but he's this presence and and it makes it all the sweeter when he does show up and my response to that is i want more godzilla in the movie (laughs) listen japan has tried to do this every single time they reboot godzilla whether it be godzilla 85 godzilla 2000 great films they just treat them like the shark from jaws godzilla 2000 godzilla's in a ton yeah he is I, oh, man, seeing Godzilla 2000 in a theater was one of the greatest movie-going experiences of my life. I think you've said this, like, multiple times on this podcast. That's because that shows you how important it was to me. <laughs> I mean, Godzilla 85 was just released on Blu-ray by Kraken yeah. Entertainment. Please send us promo copies, Kraken. But, man, during the kind of a millennium era of the Godzilla movies, I used to, like, follow the productions of the films online. And I remember uh, the day that Godzilla Mothra Mechagodzilla Tokyo SOS came out, just being so envious of the people in Japan. <laughs> Thinking, oh, I wish I... Because this, by the way, too, was kind of before, just on the cusp of everything being available on the internet. Yeah. So uh, there was a period when those movies like Godzilla vs. Megaguirus, Giant Monsters All Out Attack... All great pictures. Great pictures, but they just existed in this country kind of as rumor more than anything. I I remember (sighs) following Godzilla Final Wars... With oh. such rapt attention. Oh, me too. Every time they would announce a new monster who was going like, to be in holy it. shit! How is um, the Caesar. smog monster going to be in there? Or King Caesar, yeah. the lamest of all Godzilla and villains. They, they brought back fucking Minya, the son of Godzilla. <laughs> and I, I remember being disappointed by Godzilla Final Wars when I finally did see it. because Not most, me. Because most of those monsters... Well, most of those monsters were only in it for like... 10 seconds apiece. It's also a movie that ends with an hour of Godzilla fighting, probably the most Godzilla's ever fought on screen. Well, as I've grown older and more mature, what I've come to realize is that Godzilla Final Wars is actually all thriller, no filler. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, all that all that stuff with like the, the aliens and the cyborg Matrix type people. Love and, that shit. And that big fat guy with the mustache, what's his name? <laughs> that always looks like my dad. Oh, Don Fry. <laughs> the wrestler. Where, yeah, where he goes, there's two things in this world you've got to be afraid of. One of them's me, and the other 
is Godzilla. <laughs> I remember, but, but like, I would take that over the boring shit in any other Godzilla movie. Seeing the movie and um, it'd be all in Japanese, no subtitles. <laughs> My only anchor was Don Fry, who spoke in English in the movie. I, I, another movie that I saw like that, I saw Jackie Chan's new police story on a bootleg DVD with no subtitles and just like watched the whole thing. Uh, I think the villains speak in English every now and then. The new police they? story? Yeah. Oh, I can't remember. I, but I, the the passion of Jackie Chan's dramatic performance was enough <laughs> to get me through. His uh, passion, drunken his, uh, his, <laughs> his passion of Joan of Arc like suffering. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Shin Godzilla. I can't wait. It looks. I just saw the trailer today. It looks great. Oh, had you not seen it before? Had I mean, been, like, I, I've seen a couple of trailers, but they released a new one for the American market that is really well. It has the Akira Ifukube classic music in it. I but the fact that he's not fighting any monsters kind of gives me pause you know i'm okay with that i mean some of my favorite godzilla movies like godzilla 1985 the original gojira (laughs) those Uh, are the only ones those are the only ones you know great films he doesn't fight any monsters as long as he shows up a lot in it and just knocks buildings over yeah that's all we want i mean i i I was having this conversation yesterday at a party we were at because there were godzilla clips playing on the tv and i was like why do we love godzilla so much like is there anything beyond just watching a monster knock over buildings well i think there's something kind of weirdly aesthetically beautiful about them i mean we're kind of preempting the podcast that we're inevitably going to do about godzilla (laughs) yeah but uh i think those movies with their kind of like rubber monsters and their uh, cardboard skyscrapers and stuff actually kind of create a counter aesthetic. Mm-hmm. There's something a bit otherworldly about them because like the, the movies, people think they're cheap, but when you watch oh, it, they are not cheap. I remember yeah. being furious in class when a guy was like, Oh, Godzilla 1985. You can see like Tonka truck written on one of the oh, uh... fucking bullshit. I mean, <laughs> like it costs a lot of money to build those sets. Okay. Yeah. And to destroy them afterwards. Yeah. Like, Okay. They uh, they don't look 100% realistic. And I remember, I think David Callett talks about it in one of his books, that that is not always the point of these movies. Yeah. To be realistic, like real life, but it's just to create an emotion in the viewer. Like, I think there's actually something uh, a little bit racist about that reading of the, of the Godzilla movies, because basically what you're saying is, oh, these Japanese, they can't understand that that this looks the movie's cheap. like fake. No, yeah. the Japanese get it, okay? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we're very excited for Shin Godzilla, and this long preamble has been um, a plea to Funimation. Let us host a screening of Shin Godzilla. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> Let us do the commentary on the DVD. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, all those professionals like David Callan and uh, yeah. that other guy that runs the Godzilla website, August uh, Ragu. Oh, or, yeah. Or Steve Rifle. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Those are dinosaurs of the past. You bring in the young blood. Yeah. <laughs> Who can't speak Japanese <laughs> and just really love those movies. I've seen every single one of them. <laughs> so that makes you an expert more than anybody else. Uh, many of them I've seen multiple times. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. All right. Shin Godzilla coming out on October. This sounds like Funimation paid us money to do this. I'm, if they would like to pay us. <laughs> oh, money. can you imagine we do like ads up to the date of its yeah. release? And also uh, this episode is sponsored by Casper Mattresses. <laughs> no, for, it's uh, not. Not yet. For a, for a relaxing night's sleep. And, uh, and <laughs> at adamandeve.com. And have you ever oh, hated going to the post office? Well, stamps.com. <laughs> uh, uh, good stuff. <laughs>